Zachary Bartels is a debut suspense novelist. Um, he caught my eye because his proposal had a Stephen James endorsement already our AT&T studio, Zachary Bartels, is with us, the author of Playing Saints. Saints come marching in, the power of faith and the reality of evil, and uh, we've got Zachary Bartels with us today. There are a lot of really good Christian novels out there. They're just not published by Christian companies or advertised as Christian novels. Years of declining sales, Family Christian Stores announced on Friday that it will be permanently closing all 240 of its stores by the end. What's fascinating about the Christian market, though, is that the big five don't dominate outside of Harvard Concert. And the 2015 Carol Award for debut novel is presented to Kate Breslin for such a time as this. Writing Christian fiction, exclusively Christian type fiction, is not where you want to be right now. Okay. This is Clinch, a podcast of fiction and not fiction. About a year and a half ago, I was sitting on an author panel at a local bookstore in Grand Rapids, Michigan. It was me, my friends Susie Finkbeiner and Tracy Grote, and we were super excited uh, to be joined by best-selling author Stephen James. Now, Stephen James is a great author, and I was excited to meet him, but I kind of expected him to be one of these, like, glowery, super serious, maybe too serious about his work, always grumpy kind of guys, just because his books are super dark and super successful. Now, I was planning on gushing all over him anyway, because he had hooked me up by giving me a very rare for him blurb about playing Saint to put on the front of the book proposal, which wound up later on the front of the actual book. But as it turned out, I didn't have to pretend to like him. He is one of the nicest guys, one of the funniest people, and one of the most incredibly engaging speakers I have ever had the pleasure to meet. But at this book signing, he did bust my chops quite a bit. He's the kind of guy who sort of establishes the playful, fun, back-and-forth vibe right off the bat, and he zoomed in on one thing with me, which was that I outline. And when he found out I outline, it was like he found out that I murder people and make clothes out of their skin or something. And and he started to just razz me nonstop about this outlining because his approach is just right, right straight ahead, right not knowing where your characters are going. Let them go ahead and at every turn, ask yourself, what would the character do in this situation? And then create the next situation, which is always whatever would be the worst thing for your character. So just keep on throwing the worst possible curveballs at your character and let them sort of find their way out, write yourself out of all these corners. This was all in good fun, and we had a great discussion, and there was nothing in in his words that was really meant to judge the way that I write, but in other people, many other people, especially recently, I have been hearing more and more serious trashing of outlining. These little memes you see on Twitter about, like, the writer's life, they say things like, when an author starts writing, she's just piling up clay so that later she can sculpt it into something beautiful and stuff. It's all about how the right way to write is the the Stephen King method, where you do write yourself into a corner and then try and get yourself back out. And if that works for you, great. I have no opinion whatsoever about what the right way is to write a novel. But if you like to outline, hey, let no one shame you. Both approaches have their strengths and their possible downfalls. I guess outlined material is supposed to come off as kind of soulless, Because, you know, someone laid it out beforehand, A, B, C, one, two, three, you know, do, re, mi, whatever. And then when they went back to actually write it, there was no sense of adventure because nothing was unknown to the author. 
First of all, that sounds like a really bad author to me that would run into this problem when outlining. And secondly, I've never run into this kind of writing. I've never read something and gone, oh, that was outlined, and then they wrote it down, and so it lacks soul or any sense of adventure. But I suppose it's it's possible. From my point of view, the bigger danger is writing by the seat of your pants. Aside, when people talk about, quote, plotters and pantsers, it makes me crazy angry. I don't know why, but those terms, they, they really, they, they raise my ire, if you will. For some reason, it just seems like labels that would be on the different cuts of mom jeans. I don't know. Now, that kind of seat of your pants, I don't know where I'm going, but I'm just rushing straight dead ahead, can be done well by certain people. But I would suggest it is a very, very small percentage of people, even a very, very small percentage of talented writers who can actually make that work. I would compare it to freestyle rap, because if you've seen me, you know that that's in my wheelhouse. I actually once wrote and recorded a rap for fun because I thought it would be so funny for a middle-aged white Baptist pastor to do so with the kind of overly self-aware, ironic sense. And even then, I'm so humiliated I would never let anyone hear it. It turned out far less funny than I thought it would be. But even if I didn't have all that stacked against me, I would never be able to freestyle rap. And many, many people who are very talented in the world of hip-hop also can. You have to have a particular wiring. And I think it's something that you have to have from birth. You can hone the skill, but people have to be wired a certain way to be able to just start rapping and know that each line is going to fit with the one that comes after it. That they're going to be able to think on their feet that well, pivot that easily and quickly in whatever direction they need to, verbally speaking. When it's not done well, it is cringeworthy. And I would argue the same thing is true of writing without an outline. And I think most people are grossly ill-equipped to just sit down and write the straight line of their story without exploring the space of that world first and finding the right road, trying a bunch of different ones without putting pen to page or finger to keyboard, and then solidifying it once they've bushwhacked the thing. Sure, when you start just writing, you're not committing in an irreversible way to each element you write down, but you are far more likely to stick with it if you've written it down and put some creative juice into it than if you've just jotted it on a whiteboard or a moleskin journal or mumbled it into a digital recorder in the course of brainstorming without expending any prosaic energy. Just like actors in a movie can make you believe that this is the first time they've had this conversation, even after they've memorized the script, a decently talented author can make you feel like you're exploring this story with them, even when you've already viewed it from every single angle. I saw one of those little memes on Twitter that I actually thought fit me very well, and I actually retweeted it. It said, I spend far more time watching the movie of my story in my head than I do actually writing it down. And that is so true of me, and I'm sure of many of you. I have watched and watched over and over again every element, and it, and it changes a little bit. It improves with each watching. I have entire conversations essentially locked down before I even jot them down as notes. And by the time I start writing the actual book, I often just have to copy and paste my notes in large chunks into place. Of course, I have to write an awful lot of prose and description and move things along and, and change things as I go. But man, once I start going, there's no slowing down. This thing is going to be put to paper sometimes in a couple weeks. 
because I've already spent months or a year doing the kind of work that I would argue shouldn't be done on the fly. At least not for me, someone who doesn't have the novelist freestyle gift. In fact, I think when it's not done well, writing without an outline often winds up sounding like Garth and Cat. If you're not familiar with Garth and Cat, they're about 10 years ago in the Saturday Night Live uh, rogues gallery of secondary characters. It was Fred Armisen and Kristen Wiig, and they played... <laughs> They played these songwriters who would come on Weekend Update and pretend that they had an, an album in place. And the actual actors would not have written any songs, practiced any songs or anything. And Seth Meyers would say, okay, you have a song uh, that's about such and such. But one of them would start singing and the other would watch closely and try and sing along without ever having heard because the song is being made up on the spot. In fact, let me just play you a little clip from that. This, to me, is often what outline-less writing, not Stephen King, not Stephen James, but many people wind up sounding like, to me, when they write without an outline. Okay, don't worry about it. So, um, Garth and Kat, you guys are going to sing a few songs off this album. Uh, yes. Are you ready to go? Do you need a minute? Oh, no, we're ready. Yeah, we're ready, we're ready and prepared. We're ready to do it. Okay, well, uh, I cannot wait. I'm very excited. Let's hear one. Okay. All right. Okay, our first song is uh, Halloween Party. That's exactly right. Halloween Party. Ready? Mm -hmm. And ready? Go. Dracula! There was, I just wanted to ask, are you sure that you guys practiced this? Yes! What? Yes. We've lived a long we, time. We wrote them. We know how they go. Okay, well, uh, I mean, I, I believe you. Uh, do you want to try another one? Yes, yeah. great. Okay, actually, we're going to sing a song that we perform in schools. Okay, good. <laughs> it's for children, Seth. This holiday's actually for children. Okay, yeah, I know that. Not, I'm not... It's not all about grown-ups, okay? Right. And the song is about Halloween safety. Right. Okay. What is it called? So kids, kids don't, don't smoke fake cigarettes. cigarettes. Because, because, you know, every time people see you and they and think you're an adult, adult they, they know, know it's, it's the, the most unhealthy, unhealthy thing, thing ever. ever. In this, In this town, town or any town. <laughs> I'm actually, uh, I actually uh, missed a little bit of the title of that song. Could you say it for me one more time? <gasps> we said, said guys, guys, don't smoke cigarettes <laughs> if they're, they're fake. Because, because the moment, moment a sheriff sees you, you he's, he's going to pull you in and take your hand and say, you, you can't, can't go, go trick-or-treating ever for a week. <laughs> well, uh, sounds like a great song. I would love to hear it. Okay, great. It's so owl alert. It's owl alert. You got to duck, duck it under, under the, the piano. piano. Duck under the piano. Okay, grandma's playing again. again. I said grandma's playing again. I'm begging everyone. I know. Okay, you know what? I'm just going to... No, 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 I'm just going
I just, I love you guys. I love you guys. You're the two most attractive people I've ever met in person. But it's obvious to me that you, that you didn't prepare anything. Of course, the best songs are not just made up on the spot like that. And sure, most songs probably emerged in a beautiful epiphany, but not on the first try. It happened in an exploratory setting, in the midst of musical brainstorming, or improvising, or whatever, writing down the chords, then cementing the melody line, then adding the lyrics, and then the harmony. It's built. Same thing with poetry. I remember the day that our high school English teacher, who was an absolute giant and remains so to this day in my mind, his name was John Van Loy. I say it like he's dead. He's, he's not. He's alive. He's just retired. Uh, but he said to us that poetry is not written in bursts of epiphany and inspiration like people often think, like teenagers often tried to write their poetry, that the best poetry, the poetry that we study and celebrate was carefully crafted over many drafts. That work was done and it was put down and it was agonized over until every little syllable was right. And yes, I do actually discover the story. Just like someone who sits down and just starts writing, not knowing where it's going, discovers the story then, I just do it earlier on while riding my bike with a voice recorder in my bike glove. Or in the shower, writing on these waterproof notepads that my wife and I always buy. In fact, there's a steady supply, so we never run out. In fact, if you want to buy those, I'll put a link to them. Uh, underneath this episode on the Clinch Podcast website. And then I put it all together into an enormous outline. This is what it looked like for my book, The Last Con. I had spent nearly a year researching historical stuff about this guy, Count Cagliostro, uh, whose real name was not Count Cagliostro, who was a con man. Honestly, read my book, The Last Con, even if it's just for all the fascinating historical background stuff. It's, it's wild, the stuff this guy did, and how he was absolutely world famous for so long, and so few people today have even heard of him. But I did all this background work, and I had... Pages and pages and cards and cards and tons and tons of notes about that. Then I'd done all this research about how cons actually worked, how con men operated, how heists and scams and all these things actually played out. And I'd written all that stuff down, a lot of the terminology. And then I have this epiphany. I'm going to change the terminology and make my own little world where con men operate mostly the same, but with a different vocabulary, just for fun, just because. Then I had a bunch of stuff that I had jotted down about character development that I wanted to work in. And I had, of course, all the elements of the plot that had to move the story forward. And it all had to work together so that the backstory in the 18th century was doled out in time with the current story and the heist and the reveal of who the bad guy actually was and all this stuff. And it was overwhelming to me to the point where I actually put it off for like three months. And it was only my editor sort of digitally tapping on my shoulder going, uh, remember, you have a manuscript due soon. Uh, we've already paid you in advance, etc." cetera, uh, that made me finally put that outline together. And the outline was three of those big, uh, they're like poster boards, but they're a little thicker. They've got really faint ghost lines on them, making kind of a grid. Well, I bought three of those and I printed everything out in very tiny little uh, columns, about two inches across. Uh, and I printed all of the historical background in one color, I think pink paper, all of the character stuff in yellow, all the con stuff in blue. I had I had a color code so complex that I had a key for it to make sure that I didn't lose track. Then I divided those three boards up with a magic marker into two inch wide columns, top to bottom. 
and I brought out my rough outline of what I thought should happen in each chapter. And then I started putting down each of those little things cut out on colored cardstock into the columns. And slowly, over the course of about six hours, I got my whole outline, which was 20,000 words, in place. And it was awesome. I could take it physically and hold it. I could cross things out as I decided I didn't need them. If I needed to move things around, I could pull them off because they were just taped on there with double-sided tape and put it somewhere else. To me, it was the most freeing thing in the world because I looked at it and I said, I now have the confidence, the absolute confidence to start writing one of the most complex novels plot-wise, you know, a lot going on in a way where I'm very confident it will feel cohesive. It won't feel like there's too much going on. It won't feel like even the author isn't quite sure. And that, I'm sure you'll agree, is very annoying. And so I started writing, and I started crossing things off as I went, and I wrote at a crazy rate. I really did finish that book in about three weeks. But I really finished that book in about 13 months. These differences are really just about the order in which you do the work. Am I a concert pianist who learns a piece of music by playing it over and over again, getting it absolutely perfect so that when I sit down in front of an audience, I'm not going to go, hmm, what do I play? But it's going to be basically muscle memory. Or am I kind of a freestyle jazz guy, riffing completely confident that whatever comes out of the saxophone, I play the saxophone, by the way, uh, is going to sound perfect. It's going to come off like a real song, not like some kid screwing around. And even though I was in the jazz band, I never was able to improvise. I played a few solos in some of those shows, and you know what? All of them had been figured out beforehand, written out beforehand, and committed to memory so that I could be confident. And you know what? I think the people in the audience appreciated it. At least they would have appreciated it if they heard me try to improvise. I don't have that gene. I don't have that skill. I don't have that gift. And that's okay. It's certainly a good thing that I didn't try to become a professional jazz musician lacking that skill. But there's any number of other kinds of music you can play. Most music you play, you're not making up as you go along. And at the risk of just getting redundant, that's how I approach books. A few people have that skill where they can just jump in and go. And you read along and you're going, what will happen next? What will happen next? Aside, when I know someone wrote a book that way, I'm far less likely to say what will happen next and bite my nails. Because when I know that even the author didn't know where it was going, unless it's an absolute master of the craft, I always hear little shades of Garth and Cat beneath the surface. I can't help it. But for everyone else, don't be ashamed of outlining Don't believe the little graphics on Twitter with somebody's website printed at the bottom that tell you the right way to write is to burn through a rough draft that you know is going to suck so that you can get done with it and then start whittling away everything that doesn't belong and rewriting it, redoing it, reshaping it. That sounds dreadful to me. I would never do that. By the time I start putting ones and zeros into Microsoft Word, believe me, I'm not going to be rewriting My rough draft is 94% the same as my final draft. Why? I've already written 10 drafts. They were just in my head. They were in my mind's eye. I wrote them while on my bike or in my car or standing in line at the bank. Because I think when you read a book like the kind of books I write that have a twist somewhere in the end and they have, you know, some kind of reveal, that it's most rewarding when the whole thing has been designed to bring you to that point in the most efficient way 
and moving and engaging way possible. You didn't just wander there, you headed there. And here's the surprise twist for the not-fiction version of this podcast. This is the first one that I have just rattled off off the top of my head without first writing down and editing and reading for all of you. Isn't that clever? No? It's not? You're right. So let's just pretend that this went very well and check back in with Adam Marsh and Trenton and Judith and the little town of Clinch Rock. Clinch, a novel, chapter 15. Quote, You've heard that God will never give you more than you can handle, right? I challenge you to test him on that. Go nuts. Try to take more than you can handle and see if God won't pump you up. You hear that still small voice? You know what it's saying? You've got this. From Insane Faith, Superhero Edition, by Stephen Branding, page 188. Incoming call, Chet Bushman, the phone's display read. Adam tapped, decline call, feeling a rush of endorphins from that mere flick of his finger. What a sense of freedom. He'd recorded a temporary voicemail greeting, declaring his absence for the day-long conference, and was determined that nothing would draw him back to Clinch Rock. He needed this, a day with no police work, no classwork, and most of all, no Bushman. Then again, it wouldn't be a full day, would it? According to the clock on his dash, it was 12.10. The conference ran from 10 to 6. He stepped on the gas. Using the badge to skirt traffic laws was not something Adam made a habit of doing, but today was different. A bag in the back held civilian clothes, into which he planned to change when he got there. He probably wouldn't have time for that, though. It was vital he arrived before lunch was over. Adam dug through the stack of documents on his passenger seat, searching for the conference schedule. He'd shelled out the extra 200 bucks for the VIP pass, which meant lunch with Stephen Branding himself, and that was important, because he had many questions to ask the guru, like, what do you do when your insane faith lifestyle begins to chip away at your very soul, burying you under broken commitments and, and constant guilt over not doing enough? He realized he'd been putting off dealing with this present and growing danger to his soul and psyche by deferring to this day, this lunch, this face-to-face -face meeting with the man who'd changed his life. There it was, a whole packet of conference materials. The schedule indicated that lunch went from 12.30 to 1.30, and the conference itself would resume at 2. Just a hint of the familiar panic tinged the tips of his fingers and the bottoms of his lungs where it always seemed to start. There was no way he'd make it. Park in the ramp, trek to the entrance, register, find his way to this VIP lunch, and get a seat anywhere near the man himself. Besides, the conversation would already be waning. This was not going to happen. Unless, maybe, if he just used the uniform to get close, under pretense of some important news... No. Adam pulled over to the side of the road. His breaths were coming shallow, and his vision swimming. Driving in this state would be foolish. Then he noticed the little orange card paper-clipped to the top. VIP Backstage Pass. A flicker of hope returned. Perhaps he could catch branding for a few minutes during a break or after the event. The pass itself bore no more information. 
Flipping through the packet, he found no answers. However, there was a 1-800 number to call with questions about the event. As he began to dial, his phone rang again. Bushman. He declined the incoming call and finished punching in the number. Mega Events Management, this is Nina speaking. How can I help you? He took a deep breath. Hi there, I'm running a little late for the Insane Faith live event in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and I was really hoping to have a chance to speak with Stephen Branding. I've got the VIP package, and I'm wondering if there might be an opportunity to speak with him after the event. Silence on the other end. And then, um, you didn't receive an email last night? I don't know, I have a few email addresses, and I don't always get to all of them. Well, I'm very sorry to be the bearer of sad news, but Mr. Branding was rushed to the hospital from the Denver airport last night, and I'm afraid he passed away this morning. Adam felt the air sucked from his chest. So, the woman went on, there's no event. You'll receive a refund for your registration fee in the mail. I'm very sorry for this inconvenience. What was it? I'm sorry? How did he die? The press release says a coronary event. That's all I know. Okay, thank you. He ended the call. The car was spinning and shrinking around him, and an inexplainable anxiety was growing within. Gripping the steering wheel and breathing like his doctor had taught him, he willed the episode to pass, but it didn't. The tightness in his chest was suffocating. He tried not to think about the ramifications of this. For most of a year, he'd been pinning everything on the writings of Stephen Branding, and as the pressure increased, he'd been looking to Branding for inspiration. He'd been trying to emulate the man's attitude and diet and sleep preferences, and now the man was dead at the age of 51, and that changed everything. Adam thought about calling 911. An ambulance would bring him to Fremont or maybe Big Rapids. He was out of Lake County now. With any luck, he could keep it from Barton. No, he thought. This is my day off. I will not waste it in a hospital bed. He'd spend it on something that mattered. He'd surprise Trenton with an afternoon just for the two of them. A couple hours of archery and maybe burgers at their favorite dive in Scottville. The thought calmed him. He was breathing easier. A few minutes later, he was fine, pulling back onto M37, looking for a turnaround. You hated that job anyway, Judith said, gesticulating with a freakishly long fry. If you want, I can ask Brooke about hiring you at Rerun. No, thanks. Trenton looked down at his plate, where the wreckage of a grinder sat, mostly uneaten. His appetite had never materialized. Good thinking. More time for our search. Look, Judith, let's make a pact. This sounds interesting, she said. Go on. I'll quit nagging you, and I'll even help you. If you promise, we're focusing on this case, on finding the money. You won't go after Fisher again. You won't go after Dan. I need you to promise me you won't get distracted by anything else until we've recovered Cassell's missing money. Judith thought for just a moment and nodded. Deal, she said, extending her pinky finger. Trenton wrapped his own around it and tugged. They'd sealed every agreement with a pinky swear since they were little kids, and it remained an unbreakable commitment in their eyes. So where should we look after lunch, she asked. I don't know. I really think our best bet is either the Cassell house or the lumber camp. Lumber camp, she said. I don't want to step foot on Zoe Green's property. Well, then we better not go to the lumber camp. Judith dropped her sandwich onto her plate. Seriously? What are they, buying up the whole town? Sort of, yeah. Maybe we need some fresh inspiration, Trenton said. Let's get back to my house and read some more of the diary. Try and get inside the head of the man who was closest to all this. Judith waffled. 
That's kind of a one-man job, isn't it? No, we'd read it together. I don't know. How about this? Your dad left me stranded here without the iron horse. You go home and type up as much of that diary as you can. I'll walk home, get my bike, and meet you at your place. Then we can decide what's next. Sounds like a solid plan, Trenton said. He looked down at his plate again. Empty. Apparently his appetite had returned. Adam was just passing the Welcome to Clinch Rock sign when he saw it. A battered old red pickup truck zipping by on the cross street, maybe an eighth of a mile ahead. He felt a spike of energy. The only solid lead they had so far had come from Trent, the old red pickup with no plate. What if this was it? If he could get a license to go with the men who broke in, that could very well break the case. Thankful to be in his LeBaron rather than the squad car, Adam turned onto Wilder. He could see the truck way up ahead. Adam squinted and chided himself for not wearing his glasses. He had figured his VIP seats would be close enough to Stephen Branding that they'd be unnecessary. Man, had this day taken a turn. More like three hard lefts in a row. Adam slowed a bit and let the truck disappear over the horizon. When tailing someone, it was best to give them a sense that you didn't care whether you kept them in view or not. A few seconds later, he picked up the pace again. Wait, where had the truck gone? It was no longer on the road ahead of him. He craned his neck this way and that, searching for the old rust bucket. Only as he passed it did he see the truck disappearing down a half-overgrown two-track to the right. He consciously maintained his speed as he blew past and went another few hundred yards, then pulled to a stop on the shoulder of the road. He touched the radio, mounted on his left shoulder, but didn't depress the transmit button. Should he wait for backup? It was the smart thing to do, but, but something told him not to. He thought about the shiny new nail heads in the station floor. He thought about the chain of unsuccessful night watches and the fact that no break-in had been attempted during his own watch two nights earlier. And now this. He knew where that little trail led. It was the back way into the old sawmill. Years earlier, kids used to sneak in late at night to make out or smoke pot, and tired of constantly patrolling this lonely back road, the chief at the time had convinced the city to secure the building and install a padlock. So either the men in the truck were living in a crumbling, termite-infested sawmill, or there was another break-in happening. A daytime break-in. On the one day Chief Marsh was out of town and incommunicado, not expected back until late. He realized that, as he thought, he'd been walking in the direction of the mill. He would call for backup, but only when he was right on top of the place. That way, if there was an inside man in his department, there'd be no time to warn the suspects. As he made his way up the narrow path, Adam popped open the retention snap on his holster and drew his Glock 23. He'd only pulled it well on duty twice before in all his years on the job, but surprisingly he felt no hint of the earlier panic. He was focused, ready for whatever he should find inside. When the sagging old structure came into view, the dead beech trees partly obscuring it like vertical blinds, he finally made the call. Dispatch, this is Chief Marsh. I'm at the old sawmill, pursuing possible suspect in the chain of B&Es, requesting backup. He clicked the radio off and moved cautiously forward, entering the woods and moving parallel to the drive. It took him a few minutes to reach the clearing, and he was rewarded with a clear view of the red truck. He saw the license plate immediately, 4781DZL. He pulled out his notepad and jotted it down. Now what? Now he'd wait for backup. He had the missing piece of information and the location of the suspects. It was less than a 10-minute drive out here from the station. All he had to do was wait, and they'd have the place surrounded. Then he could finally put this behind him. 
retire from the force, go full-time at the church. He felt the tightness return to his chest. Then he heard a rustling in the brush behind him. Before he could turn to see what it was, an explosion of pain enveloped the back of his skull. He saw golden fireworks, and then pure white, and then black. Trenton was sitting on the living room couch with his laptop into his third page of the diary when Zoe called. He was surprised at the drop he felt in his spirit upon seeing her name on the display. Just yesterday, he would have given anything to reconcile. And of course, that was the problem. He'd given too much. Hello, he answered. Hi, it's me. I've been trying to call you all morning. She had? Are you home right now? I really want to see this room you're talking about. Trenton couldn't help but note the stark contrast between her condescending tone when she'd slammed the door in his face that morning and her current chirpiness. He desperately wished he could retroactively take back that phone call. This secret was supposed to be for him and Judith alone. There was a pinky swear on the line. It's not really a secret room, he said. I may have kind of embellished the truth, more like a a corner of the basement. What about this diary? I'd give anything to see it. She sounded semi-desperate. It was a weird dynamic between the two of them, moving in this direction, anyway. Trenton made a sudden, rash decision. He would have to give Zoe up to protect Judith. If Judith had any inkling that Trenton had violated her trust like this, all bets were off. There was no telling who she'd be swooping down on, ox goad in hand. I lied, he said, lying. I'm sorry, I just wanted to get you to call me. I missed you. You lied, she repeated. Yeah, sorry. Lied about all of it. The room, the diary, the whole thing. She sounded less than convinced. Yeah, I just asked myself, what's the one thing that would get Zoe to call me back? And that popped into my head. There was a long, pregnant pause on the line. And then Zoe said, Trenton? Yeah? Never call me again. Just as the line went dead, the doorbell rang. He staggered over to answer it, feeling a bit woozy. He opened the door to reveal Officer Terrell, standing there in uniform, holding his hat in his hand and avoiding eye contact. Something's happened to your dad, Trent. I'm supposed to take you to the hospital in Big Rapids. Adam's skull ached. Every beat of his heart brought a new tidal wave of pain over the back half of his head. And just before each new wave would recede, another crashed down on top of it. He experimentally lifted his head to look around the room and was surprised to find himself still staring at the ceiling. His head hadn't moved. A flood of fear joined the pain at the base of his skull for a moment. He wiggled his fingers, then his toes. They worked okay. Then he lifted his arms and legs. No paralysis. But his head refused to budge more than an inch off the pillow, as if it weighed 500 pounds. So instead, he turned it to the right, where he saw a calendar hanging on the wall. It was definitely a hospital room. That was the where. But the calendar raised the question, what's the when? How long had he been here, unconscious? He barely remembered the sound behind him and the blow to his head. He had a patchwork of half-memories fading in and out. Officer Cash crouched down, concern all over his face, Rich Barton riding in the ambulance with him. A note, scrawled on a whiteboard next to the calendar, read, Getting breakfast. Back soon. Tea. Adam turned his head the other way and saw that he wasn't alone in the room. A broad-shouldered older man with yellow-white hair stood with his back to Adam. He was shutting the door to the hospital room. He lingered there, making sure it was clicked shut. 
He was dressed in a flannel shirt and dirty old jeans. In his half-conscious, medicated state, Adam felt a wave of warm nostalgia at the sight of the man. He was reminded of his long-dead great-grandfather, who always carried in his back pocket a little round tin of chewing tobacco. Clinch, a podcast of fiction and not fiction, is a Cardiff Giant production. Copyright 2017, Zachary Bartles. Produced in partnership with KD Enterprises. Theme music composed and performed by Bill Colon. Excerpted text from Clinch, a novel. Copyright 2017, Gutcheck Press. Special thanks to WAC Productions, www.wacfilm.com. For more information about me and my books, visit ZacharyBartles.com. If you'd like to drop me a note, you can reach me by email at Zach at ZacharyBartles.com. That's Zach with an H, like God intended. Or through the U.S. mail at P.O. Box 10003, Lansing, Michigan, 48901. Naturally, I'm also on Facebook and Twitter at Author Z Bartles. And if you're a little twisted, you might want to check out the Gut Check Podcast, www.gutcheckpress.com slash podcast. Thanks for listening. Gut.